So I don't, I know about beers, but I do not like beers. I've tried it. I, I don't like it. I also love Michiganders. I love that people in Michigan call themselves that. Yeah, it reminds me of salamanders. Yeah, except more goose-like. Welcome to Hello PhD, a podcast for scientists and the people who love them. This week on the show, we get career advice from a new faculty hire and learn how she landed such a competitive gig. Stay with us. And we're back. This is Hello PhD, episode 29. I'm Joshua Hall. And I'm Daniel Arneman. And we'll discuss the human side of science and life in the lab. Greetings from frigid North Carolina. Yeah, finally it got cold. Yes, winter has arrived at last. I think, uh, I don't know if it got above freezing today, Dan. I know it. We're going to have to uh, basically shut down the entire state. That's right, they're calling for snow, so I went ahead and bought five loaves of bread and three gallons of milk. Yeah, and then you can make some soggy bread. I, put, I, I never understood that. The For those of you who do not live in the, the, the not-quite-south, the moment there's a threat of any kind of weather whatsoever, there's a snowflake about to fly, everybody goes and buys bread and milk, and I have no idea what recipes you can make with bread and milk. You know, every, every year, Dan, I listen to the ridicule of transplants from the the northeast complain about how everything shuts down with even the threat of snow here but i would argue that's a feature of the south i kind of like that you know an inch of snow falls and we're all like you know what let's just take a day no we're done (laughs) stay at home stay home kick back eat some soggy bread delicious Well, well dan in honor of our first winter weather I have a special beer for us today, Dan. This is the Full Steam Brewery right here in Durham, North Carolina. First frost. Oh, perfect timing. Yep. This, this may be the first frost, global warming. <laughs> well, this is, a, this is a beer that they only put out in the winter, and that's because this is made predominantly from persimmons. The fruit? The fruit, yeah. Wow. So this is the 2015 foraged persimmon ale. So this is pretty cool. Uh, it says it's an ale brewed with forage persimmon. So what Full Steam does is they put out a call. They've got a network of people who go around and just pick up these fruits. Their their persimmon network. Their persimmon network. I need to I need to get those people on the line. <laughs> That's right. And people who these persimmon trees just grow random places around North Carolina, and often you know the persimmons are not necessarily a cash crop. So people just bring in their buckets of persimmons and. Full Steam makes beer out of them. I don't know a lot about persimmons, but I am anxious to try the beer here. Yeah, one thing that's cool about persimmons, I guess it's not a fruit that's very tasty for most of the year, but after the first frost, they become a very sweet uh, very sweet fruit that is often referred to as the fruit of the gods. Wow, you'd think more people would want to grow it. Uh, the other, uh, wouldn't have to forage it from somewhere. Well, before, I, before you drink too much of this beer, Dan, I should tell you this is a 10% alcohol content. And I will be sleeping on the studio floor tonight. What do you think? It, it it's a little bit. It's like a Belgian. Is that is that the intention? Uh, I'm not sure, but it definitely gives off some high gravity vibes. Yes, it does. But but not a bad flavor, I wouldn't say. No, not a bad beer. If you like Belgian beers, you will probably like this one. I feel like it's probably got some candy sugar in it. Or do you think the persimmons actually contribute that much? I think it's sugar. just. I think it's just the persimmons. I know when you order this at Full Steam, they serve it in a small glass, but. We each have a full pint. <laughs> yeah, which we will probably not be finishing. So the etymology might get interesting this week. Yep, 
it'll be mostly slurred, so stay tuned. Dan, you got some feedback on last week's beer. I did. We had such a hard time with the uh, Y-P-S-I-L-A-N-T-I name. Yeah, our beer last week came from that what, place. Uh, what I pronounced as Ypsilanti, Michigan. Ypsilanti. Uh, I was wrong. We put out a call for somebody to please correct us. We do care about the words we use. So I got a, an email this week. It said, hey, guys, thanks so much. Uh, we listened to your la- last episode specifically about the brewer from Ypsilanti, Michigan, pronounced Ypsilanti. It's no bother, though. Everyone pronounces it incorrectly, even Michiganders. If you get over near us, we'd love to treat you to a pint or two. We really love the show. Thanks again for this. So two things, Ypsilanti, and two, we got to get to Michigan. Somebody offered to buy us beer. That's right. Can we wait until spring? Yes, I think that's a good idea. I also love Michiganders. I love that people in Michigan call themselves that. Yeah, it reminds me of salamanders. Yeah, except more goose-like. <laughs> Actually, now I'm con- now I'm wondering if it's Ypsilanti or Ypsilante. Oh. Please write back. <laughs> yeah, that's true. It's not clear. It says A-N-T-E, so it could be a lot of different things. We will, we will solve this mystery. Dan, I'm pretty excited about what we're doing today. What are we doing today? Well, I realized we spend a lot of time on the show talking about other careers outside of the academic track. We sometimes call them alternative and then you cringe and then we correct ourselves. Yes, because as we know, statistically speaking, most PhDs do things other than faculty positions. So today you want to actually talk about the alternative we career. Are, we're going to talk about the real alternate career today. And that wow. is the tenure track faculty position. Because what I didn't want, Dan, is we had a great episode talking to Dara last week about tips for stepping off of the tenure track. But what I didn't want to do was give the impression that we were somehow against trainees going into tenure track faculty jobs, because that is not at all the case. very far from the case. The reality is we would love it if everybody wanted to do that and everybody got to do it. Um, We are recognizing that not everybody wants to do it and not everybody gets to do it. Um, but yeah, I, I love if, if really good people want that job and, and it's a, the right fit for them. That's awesome. Yeah. And all of those things we talk about, you know, finding the right job where it doesn't feel like work and you feel like you're best suited for it. For some people, that is a tenure track faculty job at a research institution. Well, I think now you've, you've done an interview today. And I think we're going to hear something probably along those lines. That's what we're going to do, Dan. So what I did was I interviewed Natasha Snyder. And so Natasha just finished her first year as a tenure track faculty member at UNC Chapel Hill. That's awesome. So she probably is not so far into it that she's forgotten all the details of her graduate school career and postdoc career and all of those different things. I mean, I think after you're out of it long enough, it sort of blends together and you you forget the details, but she's probably new enough. She remembers. Yeah, that was my thought. I thought she could really give us an interesting perspective on what it's like to be a brand new tenure track faculty member and could really provide some interesting perspective to our listeners because I know we have some listeners out there who their goal is to be a tenure track faculty member. And so this is for you this week. Yeah. And if you do not want to be a tenure track faculty member, listen anyway, because she has some advice that I think will probably surprise even you. Absolutely. Well, let's listen to it. My name is Natasha Snyder, and I'm an assistant professor of cell biology and physiology at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. I guess first question is, what led you to pursue science as a career, and 
along those lines, how did you first get involved in research? Um, so I grew up in Eastern Europe in Macedonia, and so it was there was there weren't a lot of other types of science opportunities. Math was it, um, and so I thought for sure I was going to pursue something in you know math related. Um, then when I was a sophomore in high school, I came to do a high school exchange to the U.S., and I was in Michigan. I just liked it and ended up staying for college there. And so when I got to Michigan State, um, I said, okay, well, I like math, so I'm going to study engineering. And somehow at that time, I thought it would be really cool to work for a drug company and make drugs. And I thought chemical engineering was the, the way that it was going to get me there. But then I realized there were all of these other um, science career fields, and I found that I liked biochemistry a lot more. So it wasn't really until my junior year, um, or after my junior year at Michigan State, that I started working in a life science lab. And I was just the undergrad helper, you know, doing dishes. Um, one of the senior lab techs took me under his wing and um, showed me what a lab is all about. Um, so it was in the pharmacology and toxicology department at Michigan State University. Um, but even after I graduated, I was kind of debating whether grad school was for me because this research thing was new. For me. You know, I got into the game kind of late. Um, and so then I decided to take a couple of years. I worked as a research tech, again, in a pharmacology lab. And I mean, I loved it. And the PI was so great. He, he let me take graduate courses while I was working. Um, so then, I mean, from then it was, um, yes, I liked pharmacology and I was going to get a PhD, and that's the way I was going to go work for a drug company. <laughs> I was geographically restricted because um, I got married around that time and my husband had a steady job in Michigan, so I went from Michigan State to the University of Michigan to pursue my PhD. So what was, what was grad school like for you? Grad school was awesome. Like, I, you know, I kind of feel bad when sometimes people struggle, and I think a lot of why my grad school experience was so great for me was my mentor. Um, I had a, his name is Paul Hollenberg, he's um, more senior faculty at the University of Michigan, but he, he studies drug metabolizing enzymes. And so I picked his lab primarily based on him just being a fantastic person and, I, and he had a record of training people who had gone to, you know, industry, government, academia. So I knew I was in good hands. But what was so awesome about Paul was that he let me have an independent project that was not part of his R01 grant, um, that was something that I was excited about, and he just let me go with it. And owning that project really just made it super fun for me. So how about your postdoc? My postdoc was fantastic. <laughs> so I feel bad because, you know, I don't have, like, sometimes people have a, a, bad, ex a bad example that they can kind of learn from, but I've only had really fantastic mentors. And at my postdoc I did at Michigan too, so my husband does these things to me. The first time it was his job, so we couldn't move out of Michigan. Then he was in law school at the time that I finished grad school, so I had to stay in Michigan for a postdoc, and I liked the University of Michigan. But again, it was really that connection that I had with my advisor that kind of drew me to the lab. My mentor and I really aligned in terms of what we deemed important, productivity and just getting projects done. And um, I, When I went into my postdoc, I already knew what kind of fellowships I wanted to apply for, and he was all for supporting me. You know, the postdoc was even better than the PhD in terms of just my ability to produce and kind of get to the next level. You know, you said you had two really great mentor experiences. 
or really three great mentor experiences mm-hmm. if you count your that technician work too. Do you think you were just lucky or do you, are there certain things you looked for when choosing mentors? Yeah, so I, I mean part of it is, yeah, I feel definitely blessed to have been, you know, to have had the chance to meet these people, but part of it too is looking at the overall character of the person and what can you learn from them because your mentor is not just somebody that's going to teach you about that area of science. They're you know, they're going to teach you a lot more. They're going to teach you how to deal with people. They're going to teach you about how to mentor people. So, I, I mean, these two men were just, I mean, they were great at it. And I could see that. And they had a track record to prove it. I think part of it is being blessed, but part of it is kind of being able to judge a person. And I was never going to settle for one of those labs where the person is just a brilliant scientist, but he yells, at, he or she yells at their people all the time, or you know, you have to sleep in the lab. So that I just knew that kind of environment wasn't for me. So how did you decipher that? How did you know those environments weren't like that? What types of, I guess, homework or detective work <coughs> did you do when you were choosing either your graduate or postdoc lab? Um, so I mean, I did rotate <coughs> before my. Before for my home PhD lab, I did rotate in a lab that was, you know, a very brilliant scientist. And it's not that he was mean or anything, is but I could see like the people were always on edge, um, <clears throat> working around the clock, and sort of just not having a lot of independence and just being told what to do. So I didn't like that, even though I was offered a position to stay in. Yeah. Lab. What about your postdoc? Because that's a little trickier to do. I guess you go on postdoc interviews. Yeah. Was that really the time? Did you go on multiple postdoc interviews, or so, how did that work? Yeah, I mean, because I was restricted to staying in Michigan, um, I think I I talked to maybe four people that I was seriously interested in. One person was one of the you know kind of brilliant scientists that you know you're going to get these hot papers, but he, he he one of the first things he said was that. He doesn't yell as, at his people as much as he used to. <laughs> so after that point, <laughs> I sort of like, you know, I sat through the interview, but, you know, I knew that wasn't it. And then another interview, you know, I could tell, you know, they try to put on a good show, but I could tell that the advisor was very hands-off and just kind of letting other junior faculty in the lab kind of take care of the postdocs or mentor them. So I didn't like that either, and the mentor that I chose um, it just happened very spontaneously where I just happened to see an ad for the position and it was about intermediate filaments which I knew nothing about but it was very close and I said um, okay why not go talk to him the same day that I emailed him I went to talk to him it was very casual Um, so I just you know, I just felt a connection. I could tell that this person really cared deeply about his trainees because he, he, you know, he was kind of going through what I like to do and just kind of, you know, even at one point kind of discouraging me from doing a postdoc because, you know, he was asking me what I what I wanted to do. And, you know, I've always been interested in translational research. And, and so he was wondering if maybe medical school would be a good, good thing. And um, But I sort of like that kind of, um, you know, being being comfortable around somebody and telling mm-hmm. them, just kind of being honest about what's going through your head. So, Dan, I want to jump in here really quick. <laughs> First of all, uh, yeah, I was definitely looking for challenges, and grad school was great. Postdoc was great. Grad school was so <laughs> easy for me. <laughs> 
Yeah, but I mean, what is really unique, I think, in this situation and, and what I haven't heard a lot of other people say is uh, she was looking for mentors, not for labs. That, it feels like a very different approach. Yeah, and I think, Dan, you've heard me say that before. And at times I have thought that to be a controversial... I don't always listen to you, but yeah. That's true. I, that's that's good, good advice now. I've thought that to be a controversial viewpoint. I've often advised students to pay more attention to a training environment that's a good fit for them than specific science that they think is cool. Um, I think ideally the best of both worlds is great, but that seems to be what, what Natasha has done. And part of the reason she had you know, such a, a rich training time was that she really was thoughtful about only entering into labs where the mentorship seems strong. Go back and re-listen. She does point out a handful of red flags. So do the people seem on edge? I know that's a little bit tough to read sometimes. Um, she talks about the the PI being um, hands-off, and, and maybe that's something you don't want. She talks about the the person saying, oh, I don't yell at them anymore. So like this level of aggression, there, there are probably some clues for you if you're willing to look for them. Yeah, and I think if there's a take-home from this, it's make sure you are looking for them. So a lot of times, I think during during a rotation situation in graduate school or doing a, during a postdoc interview, you can become so focused on the science and the projects, and there's nothing wrong with that. That certainly is an important part of the experience. But don't do that exclusively where you are ignoring things like the mannerisms or the general um, happiness of the, the people around you. Yeah, and, and don't get into the trap where you're like, well, he probably was just joking when he screamed at everybody. Like, <laughs> no, that's that's not an appropriate way to deal with human adults on any level. And it can be tricky because typically labs are on their best behavior when someone's there interviewing. But, you know, I think it can be very important to do that research if you can to really ask you know, probing questions when you're on your interview or in your rotation of the people in your lab and, you know, ask them what their experience has been. And, you know, I think you could think of ways to, to get at some of that information. Sounds good. Well, let's get back to it. So at the time that you transitioned into your postdoc, what were your career goals at that time? Because <laughs> I know initially going into graduate school, you yeah. said you're interested in drug, drug development yeah. and yeah. more industry type yeah. careers. So <clears throat> when I first met with my postdoc advisor, he asked me what I wanted to do. And I said, well, one day I want to have a nonprofit drug company because at the time there was one. And I, I think they still sort of exist in some, some form, but not, not in the original form. You know, academia wasn't kind of on my radar. I thought I, I did want to work for a drug company, but maybe there were other areas of drug development that I could look into. Um, but basically I concluded that a postdoc is just going to be my time to figure things out. And um, during my postdoc, I got interested in other things. For example, at one point I thought maybe I would like to work for the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration. I even took a summer course uh, on pharmacoepidemiology. And then I decided it probably wasn't for me. But it was just, I went through these phases of, like, well, what would I like to do? And um, academia was always there, but it was never like, I only want to be a professor, I don't want to look at anything else. Now with that said, I was planning my career structure as though I was going to be in academia in terms of publishing and getting grants and things like that. 
because even if you don't think you want to go into academia, you should be doing those things um, because it shows productivity. It shows that you can, you know, work independently, get your own funding. Um, so I always did things, you know, planning for an academic route, but explored these other opportunities. Um, I interviewed for a medical writing position. I interviewed for Big Pharma. So even after my graduate school, I did. Mm -hmm. I also did those types of interviews. So when then did you decide to pursue a faculty job? Obviously, you are a faculty yeah. member now. So when did you make that decision to go that route? It was after I visited UNC, uh, because even at, even when I was on the job market, I was still interviewing at pharma, and I was interviewing at universities. Um, so it was that just that feeling you get like I want to be at this place I want to live in this town and I want to be surrounded by these types of colleagues and I can see um, that I can grow my research program here into something that I would be really happy with so it was that finding that match so you simultaneously were interviewing for, for faculty industry. academic jobs and industry jobs yeah in fact my top two choices were UNC and an industry position and it was, and it was very close. It just came down to just other factors. Like I always lean toward industry. I just, I just, I think it's so amazing that you can put in a chemical in a person and, and reprogram what their cells are doing with a, with a small little chemical. And so I thought, and I actually know a lot of brilliant scientists who work in industry. So I never had that bias that some people in academia have. Like if you go to industry, oh, you're a sellout, you just want to go make the big bucks and you kind of lose some of your identity and you're not allowed to work on what you want to work on. I think industry is a great place for for um, somebody with a scientific training. And, you know, just like in academia, there are environments that are better suited for some people. You know, some people might like, like it in biotech more than big pharma. Um, but I think... As graduate students, you know, students should look into all these opportunities and, and not bias themselves in any way based on what they hear. Mm -hmm. They should find out first person from people who are in those positions. Mm -hmm. And my graduate training department actually did a really good job of this where um, we had these weekly seminars and they and they invited people from government, people from industry and academia. So we and as students, we always had the opportunity to go have lunch with the speaker um, on the day that they presented their seminar. And what always surprised me is that there was always a group of three of us that were always there at these lunches, and other students wouldn't. I, I, I just don't know why they, they never showed up. But I, I made so many connections that way. And it was never like a forced, sort of like awkward networking kind of a thing. It was just very natural. Um, so, I mean... It, it, the, these career things start very early on, even when you don't think you're actively doing something. Wow. If if you could write a book on the right way to do career development, I think all of her examples would be in there. She She was going to the lunch meeting to meet these industry experts, uh, industry and scientific experts from across the field, and nobody else was going. And she said, I'm making these great contacts. She got an idea about what she might want to do, and she did a summer program in it to find out if it's what she wanted to do. And I think the great thing about that is she can come to this crossroads where she's saying, okay, industry or academia, and I've got these two jobs, but she's got the experience to go back and say, I've eliminated all these other possibilities. I don't have to second guess the fact that these are my two options and I just have to compare these two. I think she did everything right. 
Yeah, and in a lot of ways, she's personifying some of the advice that we've given several times, and that is really take advantage of opportunities that exist within your environment. You know, her her graduate university had this weekly lunch series or whatever where they brought in scientists in different fields, and she was there. She made the time to go. Every week, I'm sure she was busy. I'm sure she had experiments to do, but took the time to do that, and through that process that was right there in front of her, it was very little effort other than just showing up. She made some great connections. Yeah, each one individually, you're going to feel like, oh, this was a waste of my time. Why did I do this? Uh, every once in a while, you'll have one that you're like, wow, that was kind of cool. It still may not lead to anything, but but over the course of years, you have really built this great group of contacts that you don't even know how, how you're going to call on them or get back in touch again. Yeah, and not to mention, Dan, I mean, this is, I used to take advantage of things similar to this in graduate school. But even if you're not specifically interested in the topic at hand, you start to build this muscle where you become more comfortable at having conversations, meeting and talking with individuals you don't know um, about their career. And those are skills that are actually very useful uh, later on, the more comfortable you are and confident you are to go and have those conversations, the better. It'll really help you do interviews when you have a podcast someday. <laughs> That's right. Is that right? Now, this this is another point she brought up that I think is really kind of wild. She wanted to do industry and a faculty position. That doesn't seem normal. Yeah. Of all the things we talked about, Dan, I think this blew my mind the most because, you know, I'm in a position in my day job, but then also in doing this podcast, we think a lot about careers that PhDs can do and want to do. And I realized I have such a tendency to, and I think a lot of us do in the the career realm, to put people in boxes. You know, we think about, all right, we've got the industry people and we've got the teaching people and then we've got the faculty, uh, the faculty directed people. You get in your faculty box and you stay there. Yeah, we think about, well, this is for you and this is for you and this is for you. But she is a good example of someone who it's not that cut and dry. You know, really up until the moment she was interviewing at the university she ended up in, she was also entertaining industry jobs. And that probably, you know, she indicated several times throughout our talk today that industry was always kind of her first goal. And it wasn't until she was actually on the job market that she decided to take a faculty job. I think we do have this notion that, that you're in the industry box or you're in the faculty box. And and I would love to hear from people who said, yeah, I would have done either. Just this is the opportunity that came along. So please write to us. Well, I think on one level, Dan, it makes sense because when you're actually on the job market or thinking about your career prospects, you don't know what the future holds. You don't know what's out there, what opportunities are going to be available and so it actually, I think, makes a lot of sense to have diverse interests and really cast your net more widely because, you you know, you don't know what's going to hit. Unless you're on the psychic career path and then you <laughs> kind of do. Okay, so there are significantly more PhDs <laughs> being produced than there are faculty jobs, yeah. as I'm sure you're aware. What do you think made you stand out? Um, well... So one thing, you know, when search committees go through the piles of applications, and I'm actu- I actually am on a search committee now, so it's kind of fun to see things from the other side, is, you know, you, you have to have shown productivity. Um, you have to have published during your um, graduate training, during your postdoctoral training. You have to have, I mean, it's almost a requirement that you have some kind of funding of your own. Um, so I think it was just my track record. Um, 
that was one one of the things that caught the eye of the search committee probably. Um, another thing, my, my postdoctoral advisor sent personal emails to all the chairs of the departments where I applied, even people that he didn't know, and including here. And so I think that also helps. Um, I also had met some of the faculty from here at a meeting, um, so I made sort of established personal connections. So some, sometimes having, you know, knowing somebody is also, um, you know, it, it gives you an opportunity to kind of get to know the culture of the institution from, a, you know, more of a personal perspective, um, but also it lets, it lets them get to know you on a more informal level. And so um, when I came for my interview at UNC, I was, I was really just having fun. Um, and I enjoyed meeting everybody, and I enjoyed giving my seminar and my chalk talk. So everything just kind of went very smoothly, which wasn't the case with some of the other <laughs> interviews I had. And I think the the main issue when things, you know, when people are going on these interviews and if don't go, they don't go well, I think you can't beat yourself up. Sometimes it's just a fit, and 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 you can tell when it's forced, and we can, we can, you can tell when it's very natural. So you've been a faculty member now for... A year. Yeah, over yeah. a year now? A year and a few days. <laughs> <laughs> Happy one year faculty thank anniversary. Thank you, thank you. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about what the last year has been like. What's been harder than you thought it would be? Harder than I thought? Um, people. <laughs> you know... <laughs> Hiring people and and spending time with them. You know, when you when you're a postdoc, you're you're taking care of your project and and you're just in the zone, just producing data and writing, and and you kind of it, the tendency is that you want to keep doing that. Like you just have, now you have all these ideas and somebody has to do them, um, but you have to invest the time in helping people get first to your level of excitement if that's even possible, and then get them trained and set up to do it and so I'm a very impatient person and I'm trying to work on that but sometimes it's just waiting for <laughs> for people to get to that level so that you know I it doesn't seem like I'm I'm just jumping ahead too much mm-hmm. um, I think the hard and one, another hard thing is you know you have so many ideas and in the very beginning, like the first few months you think they're all possible and it's just a matter of getting this kit and that kit and this these drugs and it's not like that it just takes and you you know you can't work like a postdoc anymore because you have other responsibilities so it's been a bit a little bit humbling to kind of (laughs) have to you know step back and say okay well it's not going to move as fast as I would like it to move but it's 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 a marathon it's not a sprint Mm -hmm. so what is your what's your typical week like (laughs) I don't know if there's a typical (laughs) we have our Monday lab meeting, um, and right after that we have seminars. So Mondays are kind of shot with, you know, sitting around meeting and talking about science. Um, I I try to, um, you know, I'm still doing experiments, so I so I usually get my stuff actually started over the weekend, and and so that during my downtime I can I can help and work with people. A lot of the last few months has been writing um, grants, um, and I, it, that, that's going to continue, but in addition, now we have to start writing papers. So um, more and more, I have to start working with my trainees and sort of putting you know, abstracts for meetings together. So a lot of it is um, either going to the lab and doing my experiments or helping somebody with an experiment or sitting at my computer, either here or at home. I can write better at home. <laughs> 
I understand that. <laughs> I feel the same way. What advice would you have for anyone listening who is a grad student or postdoc who wants to be a faculty member someday? Uh, what, what general advice would you give to, to that person? Well, I mean, obviously you have to work really hard. Um, and you always have to be, I mean, think about it. Think about the your, statistically your chances of acquiring a faculty position. And, so, and then think about all the people that you have to be ahead of to get there, right? Um, so <clears throat> when you get into grad school, you have to stack yourself against the best people in your class. Don't just pass your classes and don't just get one paper because that's the you know requirement to finish. Go above and beyond and and put yourself in situations where where you're uncomfortable. Like you know, I didn't I didn't like giving talks at the beginning and and I would always sign up to give a talk <laughs> because I knew I would have to if I said I would do it, I would have to do it. Another thing you know, it's not just enough to work hard and write papers and apply for grants. You have to talk to people. Like you have to have a personality where you're, you know, you're you're face to face with people and you're reaching out. You know, don't just hide in lab and <laughs> just get out and talk to people. Yeah, one thing I always say is there's this misconception by people outside of science that scientists are these very introverted, nose down people sitting by themselves in rooms, but science is very much a team sport. It is, it is, and I think the people who do best, they don't, they're not necessarily the brightest in terms of how smart they are, how much they've read, it's it's having the whole package and kind of balancing, you know, the social and the people aspect and your science, and you have to be able to sell your science, and you have to know how to communicate, and you can't just say, oh, I don't like writing, and I'm a bad writer, and resign to that. Like, you just have to work hard on it. The communication aspect is absolutely essential. Mm -hmm. If the faculty position is really what you want to pursue, then you have to work hard, and you have to be ahead of the game. Like, you just can't, you cannot play catch-up later on. And so, um, grad school and your like the early years of your postdoc is the time to really shine and prove yourself and you really should be applying for career fellowships in your second and definitely by your third year of your postdoc don't wait when it's four years and then you're applying for grants um, you know for example I um, and again a lot of it is whose lab you're in so I'm not going to downplay the fact that I had a really good mentoring relationship with my advisor and he was very cognizant of everything that goes into promoting a postdoc's career. Um, but I applied for my career development award early part of the second year of my postdoc. And, you know, a lot of postdocs have this misconception that you have to have all these papers before you apply for a grant, and you don't. I mean, you just have to have a very supportive mentor, a mentoring team, and, um, and you know, good ideas, and you have to be I mean, I don't even know how many iterations of my grant I went through with my advisor. And, you know, the first thing I put together, I thought it was the best thing on, you know, on the face of the earth. And he shot it down, and I was, you know, I was just so mad. And But then I got over it. <laughs> you know, your mentor really, you have to trust. If it's a really good mentor, you really have to put your trust in them and, and then work hard to kind of fill in the other gaps. So, Dan, I just have several reactions talking to Natasha today. One is, I think it will be easy for a lot of our listeners who are really struggling through graduate school and really struggling with whether or not they want to continue on the academic path to hear 
Natasha's story and be really frustrated and maybe feel like they are a failure. Yeah, if you don't float through every possible challenge you face, then I guess it's not for you. That's that's the take home I'd get. But I think, and this is, I, I was actually really glad we did this interview today and it was very illuminating for me and nailed home a certain point and that is, this is a good way to figure out if being a faculty member is what you want to do because the thing we talk about all the time is what you should strive for and what we want all of you to strive for is to find that career, find that position where work doesn't deplete you, but actually fills you and you can put all of yourself into it. And at the end of the day, you feel energized, you feel excited to go that extra mile and do what you need to do. You want to find work that feels like a natural extension of yourself. And talking to Natasha today, it was very apparent to me that running a research lab is that for her? It's like flying for her. And and I'm sure that she had experiments not work in her career. And I'm sure that she had mean people in her lab. I'm sure she faced all the things that we talk about. Um, but because she was so in love with the research, it didn't feel like, oh, I'm, I'm never going to get through this and I hate it and I really wish I hadn't gotten started. It was like, okay, this is hard now. How can I figure it out? And And she faced the same challenges, but, but it was energizing to her and it was, and it made her want to push harder. And I don't think everybody has that reaction, but it's a really good indicator that she's doing the right thing. Yeah. And along those lines, if you're out there and you feel that way about research, you know, there's a lot of, of talk about, you know, the state of funding and about how there's so few faculty jobs and how it's really impossible to pursue that path anymore. But if you're like Natasha, if you're in graduate school, you're in your postdoc, and you love going to lab every day, and you lay awake at night thinking about your project and the next grant you want to write and your career in that way, don't listen to that. Like, that is exactly what you need to be doing. You need to stay on this path, and this is the job that's meant for you. So don't be discouraged by some of this talk if you are like her, and, you know, being in lab is what, what really excites you. This alternate career is for you. That's right. Well, I have an alternate etymology puzzle for you, sir. Oh, good. Oh, good. Spring it on me. I've been thinking a lot about this, uh, the one from last week. This one's real tough. The clue was these horn-shaped seeds are worth their weight in gold. And this is a special puzzle just for you. Because you had an etymological insight a few weeks ago. And I think we should listen to it. Kerato in the Greek means horn. So, real simple one. Uh, the word horn is right in there. That was a direct translation of carato and keratin. Is that where we get carrots, like, for diamonds? It's a good question. I'll have to look it up. Yeah. I don't know. Okay. A, a horn of diamonds would be nice. Okay, so for those of you who didn't happen to hear that episode, please go back and listen. But the clue was about keratin, which comes from the Greek keratos, which is horn. And you said... Does that have anything to do with carrots, like gems and gold? And I and I thought to myself, there's no way this has anything to do with carrots. You've had too much whatever beer we were drinking that week. Uh, but I looked it up because I said I would, and it totally has everything to do with gems and gold and carrots. Well, I mean, cl- clearly it did, Dan. I mean, I knew exactly what I was talking about um, in that moment. My Greek is so well-polished. But, but this one was really tricky. So the answer to this week's clue is actually carob. And the reason is... The carob seed, which is horn-shaped, which gets its name from keratos, was used as a weight and measure for gems and gold uh, 
in the I think it was let me see in the Middle East yeah so yeah yeah Middle East yeah. Middle East yep yeah. so the system was eventually standardized and one carat was fixed to 0.2 grams but before that a carat was was measured in the number of these little seeds that come from the carob tree yeah I think it was uh, 72 seeds probably like 72 so yeah yeah, yeah. Are we talking standard carob? You, you probably invented this unit of measure back in the day, right? I actually went in and updated the Wikipedia page uh, myself over the last few weeks. I appreciate <laughs> that. Well, I, I got a kick out of it. So thank you for, for having that insight and sending me on that chase. Well, I'm walking a little extra tall right now. Yeah. I will give you the next clue, and I've tried to make it a little easier. So the clue for this week is a doctor with this device doesn't need x-ray vision to look into your chest. I'll read it one more time. A doctor with this device doesn't need x-ray vision to look into your chest. Remember, I'm looking for a scientific word described by the clue. Once you get it, you'll find that the literal meaning of that science word is a phrase in the clue itself. If you think you know the answer, email it to puzzle at hellophd.com, and I will randomly select a winner from all the correct responses and send the lucky puzzler an Amazon gift card. And you really do that. I sure do. I think most people buy 24 carob gold. Yeah. Um, so on that note, how can people get in touch with us, Josh? Well, Dan, if you have a question that you'd like for us to talk about on the show, or if you have some feedback on a past episode, you can shoot us an email, podcast at hellophd.com. We always love to see your tweets. We are at hellophd on Twitter, or you can contact us on the Facebook page. Right. And we got to cut this short because I'm part of a persimmon foraging group. I really need to get out of here. Uh, well, I think you'll be staggering after uh, slamming down that pint of 10%. Yeah, you notice that the glass is still fairly full, right? Stay warm out there, Daniel. All right. Don't get frostbite. See you next week.